Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you would be with us, not only us, but all of your people this morning, your holy and apostolic and, and Catholic church around the world this morning, giving you praise as we remember and celebrate the beginning of Holy Week, the, the week that changed history. And we pray that we would find ourselves um, united with the one who, who so changed history, that we would be um, one with Christ, that we would find our life and our joy and our peace hidden away with him in heaven, the right hand of the Father, that the Spirit would be present and active in our lives and in our community, that we might know him and be known by him in a powerful way. And Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to speak to us and transform us and shape us into people who more and more are faithful uh, to you and who find more and more of our life in you and you alone. And in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. We are at the finish line of our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, if you haven't been with us, we've spent the last few weeks going through the Apostles' Creed. It is an ancient statement of faith, one of the earliest we have out of the uh, apostolic Christian community, the Apostles right after Jesus' resurrection. And we have been walking through it, looking at the scripture that it represents, and we will finish it up today with the last few lines in the Creed. I don't know if you saw this this morning or not, but some breaking news Um, This morning in Egypt, there were a couple terrorist attacks, uh, and so this is Palm Sunday, and so that means um, this isn't something that Sweetwater Christian Church created. We're like, this would be cool, let's do something about Jesus entering into Jerusalem. This is something that goes on all over the world. In fact, in in most churches, it's usually a little bit more than this. You'll have palms going everywhere and and, and that kind of thing. Um, In Egypt this morning, there were two Coptic churches, which is a, a kind of Christianity, kind of like a denomination, um, Coptic Egyptian churches. They were worshiping um, one in Tanta, I believe how you pronounce it, one in Alexandria, uh, and some bombs went off in both of them. Um, and last report I read was 11 had died in Tanta and five had died in Alexandria. But um, we're looking at more than a dozen. And again, these are early reports, so who knows? Um, the reports go that there were the, the explosives were on the altar, um, so the priests were probably the first to, to go. Um, and so as we mourn that uh, as a community, not only just as a global community, but as our, our Christian, Christian family, um, we realize that we are inescapably in a world, world full of, of, of evil and hate and, and violence, um, that it's not just something that is for certain people. It's not something that's far away in the world, but it's something that affects us and our family. Um, And there's something about the Christian hope and the Christian faith that I think uniquely qualifies us to endure and respond to acts like this. Um, It wasn't that much earlier in the week that we saw some chemical weapons being used in Syria uh, and and some more carnage happening over there. Um, And then now we get this here in these churches in Egypt. And throughout the, the Sermon on the Creed, uh, the sermon series on the creed, I've tried to a couple times connect the relevance of the creed to our world today. Because in a lot of people's minds, that's the big downfall of the creed, right? What in the world does this have to do with us today? 
What does it have to do in the world of smartphones and internet and technology? This little statement of faith put together by people in the second and third century. And I've tried to a couple times show how it connects um, with our world today. And, and this morning, I think we have a perfect example of that. And, and so kind of my basic argument this morning will be that in a world where church is experiencing this kind of suffering, um, it's the Christian faith and the Christian hope that uniquely prepares us and shapes us and develops us to respond to such evil and to endure such evil. And so we'll look at the last few lines here of the creed. It reads like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. It's these last three lines that we have yet to look at and that we will go into today. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You really have two kind of ideas here. Forgiveness of sins and then the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. They're, they're kind of the same thing here. Life everlasting was probably a later addition to the very original version of the creed. So just kind of explain in a little more detail what we mean when we say the resurrection of the body. The forgiveness of sins um, that we are given, that we experience, that we are to extend out to others comes to us from Jesus himself, who, who commands his people to forgive others as we have been forgiven, to offer an unconditional, indiscriminate uh, forgiveness to, to people of all um, races and ethnicities and actions, um, to offer forgiveness not just to the people that we love, but to offer forgiveness even to our enemies. And it's such a, a key part of Christianity that it finds a place here in the creed. Immediately after describing the people of God comes their kind of primal experience, which is forgiveness, the forgiveness of their sins. This is kind of what forms and shapes and sustains the Christian community. If it was not for this belief in the forgiveness of sins, right, there would be no good news gospel. It's that in Jesus and in his work and in the work of the Holy Spirit, we've found ourselves to be forgiven and been called to forgive others that we come together as a group of people. And it's this, this belief and experience in the forgiveness of sins and the vocation to extend that forgiveness to others that I think, again, forms the core of who we are as a people. And to the extent that we don't um, understand or experience or have our imaginations shaped by that forgiveness— uh, I think we will find that's the, the same amount, the same extent that we will be unable to, to extend that forgiveness to other people. Um, we, we talk about these attacks on the church in Egypt. Um, I can imagine right now there's lots of fear and confusion, and in the coming weeks there will be mourning. Um, I, I know these Coptic Christians are, are usually pretty impressive in terms of their faith. They know their scriptures well. They know their creed well. They know their Lord well. Um, and I imagine that it would be not too unlikely to see these Coptic Christians extending forgiveness to the people who have so hurt them and hurt their, their priest and, and their leaders. It was an Amish community, I think a Mennonite community, a couple of years ago that had a, a shooter come in and, and, and cause some um, damage um, and, and take some life. And this community got a lot of publicity for 
um, defending and forgiving and standing up for the offender. They were in public saying, we forgive this young man. Uh, They went to trial and testified on his behalf to try to get him out of a death penalty, try to get him out of life in prison. And there were some who, who looked on that event and said, these people have something wrong in their mind, right? The, the, the depth of that tragedy has so rewired their brain that there's some kind of like transference um, of their love for their son onto this, this enemy. But they were pretty articulate about the reasons for what they were doing. It was because Jesus had forgiven them that they wanted to extend forgiveness to this person. It was because the Mennonite community in particular is very much shaped by forgiveness uh, of sins towards enemies, enemy love. That's a key element of the Mennonite church. If you go to the Mennonite church, Quakers, um, you'll find most of them are pacifists or nonviolent um, um, believers. So kind of at the heart of how they understand the gospel is that we react to our enemies not by killing, but by being killed, by praying that they would be forgiven as we're crucified. And that belief has so kind of saturated and converted their imagination that when it happened, they acted like Jesus. And as their worlds were being crucified, they were praying for the one who was doing it, who had done it. They were testifying for the one who had done it. Instead of advocating for revenge, they were advocating for transformation, for redemption, for forgiveness. It was Jesus who said, the one who has been forgiven much forgives much. The one who has been loved much loves much. To the extent that we find ourselves unable to extend forgiveness, I think we find ourselves yet to fully understand how much we have been forgiven. You see, the difference between us and a murderer is not one of quality. It's one of quantity. It's not that they're doing something in, in, inherently ontologically different from us in their disobedience and their contribution of evil to the world. It's just that maybe we're going 20 miles per hour and they step on the gas pedal for a couple of days, go 100 miles per hour. It's quantity. It's not, it's not quality. We don't look across the aisle or look across the courtroom at someone and go, you have blood on your hands and I don't. There might be more blood or more obvious blood, but we go, we're in this together. And I have been forgiven. And so I forgive you. I extend forgiveness to you. I try to forgive you. It's not easy. It's not always this automatic thing. There's this beautiful testimony of this Mennonite community um, who I think had this, this trust, this faith, this experience of their sins being forgiven that so transformed them that it was almost unexplainable with any other reason. I can remember very clearly the day that Uh, the United States killed Osama bin Laden. And the horror of Christians' reactions in America to this death. Um, I can remember frustratingly turning on Facebook and seeing people cheering and praising his death and, and, and then seeing videos of people literally on the street cheering like their sports team had just won the death of this man. Now, Let's be clear, there's, there might be a place right, for a nuanced appreciation of the, the curbing of evil. A nuanced appreciation that justice has been served, that perhaps a, a group of people who've been oppressed will be more safe and protected now. This is not what was going on. It was, it was glib excitement that an enemy had been killed. And I can remember um, 
there's a colleague of mine who was just extremely happy about this. And, and this was a few years ago. It was a little more argumentative back then. Just don't enjoy it as much anymore. But, but I, I offhandedly said, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad you weren't there when Paul converted. I'm really glad you weren't part of that community that the Apostle Paul first came to. Remember, the Apostle Paul wrote most of our New Testament. Probably the reason we're Christians was a religious terrorist. Got paid to do it, probably. This was his job. He was a card gang member. And the early Christians did not see him. And then when they had their chance exact vengeance on him, they were so shaped by the gospel that instead of seeing an enemy that would always remain an enemy that deserved punishment, they could imagine transformation forgiveness, even to that man. They didn't see someone who was irredeemable, who had no second chances, who could not be transformed. They saw someone who um, they accepted into their community and experienced beautiful things because of that. The Christian call is inherently to be a people of mercy, to be a people of forgiveness, because we have experienced and received such forgiveness. And this is why I say I think Christians are uniquely equipped and shaped to respond to things like this. We live in a world kind of right now of terrorism. This is just kind of, kind of what's happening right now. This is the shape that evil has kind of taken on in the last few years or so. And in a world like that, where things like this happen, it's up to the church to respond with forgiveness and mercy. It's up to the church to imagine transformation and redemption. It's up to the church to not alienate and say them versus us. It's up to the church to affirm their belief in the forgiveness of sins. And that, I think, again, uniquely equips us to to handle these, these situations. We then get to the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And this this topic, this issue, this belief is actually what first got me interested in. Um, I wanted to be a teacher first. And, and so what got me interested in being a teacher and then eventually I kind of fell into being a pastor. It was this issue because growing up, I had always been told that um, what the Christian hope was, what was going to happen after Christians died was we were going to go to heaven and be with God um, in heaven for the rest of eternity. And one day the world would get kind of blown up in some nuclear war, Armageddon, and, and all the evil people would go to, to hell and burn, and we would go to heaven and live forever, and all of this would kind of pass away. And as I became a Christian and started studying the scriptures, started going to Bible studies and reading books, I was actually like really upset when I came to this idea. This, this belief that instead of our souls leaving our bodies and going to heaven for eternity, there was this Christian belief that one day, Eternity would be populated on a new earth, physical earth, with new bodies, physical bodies. And to me, there was such a kind of a unique and novel idea, and such a kind of, with that uniqueness and, and, and newness, kind of um, exciting idea, that I was really upset that this didn't seem to have a bigger place in the Christianity that I grew up in. And I, I would rack my brain, because I'm sure someone had to have mentioned it growing up. But never was it expanded upon, never was it emphasized. Um, culturally, um, the kind of common understanding of what happens after you die is what we call the immortality of the soul, which is that you've got a physical part of you, your body, you've got a spiritual part of you, your soul or your spirit. Um, and 
One of them is eternal. One of them is not. Your bodies are decaying. They are corrupt. Um, but your soul, this little bird or butterfly inside of your body, right? This is eternal. And one day when your body dies, that butterfly will keep flying and will fly up to be um, with God, with the Father, and will live forever. The scriptures, though, deny this on both accounts. They say, first, your soul is not immortal. Life is a gift from God. Your soul does not have life like a ball is round, just by virtue of existing. Your soul is given life. Souls get life. Life is not just a nature of a soul. And second, again, um, throughout the scriptures, clearly throughout the New Testament, and then throughout church history, there's this affirmation in the belief that what Christians are truly hoping for is not a disembodied experience of heaven in a disembodied place, but an embodied experience of eternity in an embodied place, physical bodies raised again to live on a new earth that God has recreated. So if you have your your scriptures, open up with me to um, Philippians chapter 3. I want to look at this idea there in Philippians chapter 3. The resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So the, the belief in the immortality of the soul is actually a pagan belief that goes back to the philosophers and well before the time of Jesus. There's lots of reasons, perhaps historically, that it's it's come to be um, kind of the default position of Christians. Um, one of them, I think, is kind of simple, which is it's just a, kind of easier to go there. Um, so say like you've got a, a six-year-old kid who's asking you, you know, what happens after you die. Um, it's a lot easier to just say, well, they go to heaven and be with God. Then you'd be like, okay, well, there's going to be the zombie type thing, but it's not really like the zombies you see on TV. They're scary, but there'll be bodies and graves and all these kind of things. It's a little more in-depth and complicated. Um, as well, we are so saturated by this default belief that to even try to start to explain this, you have to deconstruct so much that already goes on. Um, you go to funerals and you, you hear things like, this person is now an angel. And, and you don't want to be the person who stands up at the funeral and is like, well, that's not how I read the Bible. This person's dead. Um, <laughs> that's all these specifics. I tried that once and never again. Um, You have this kind of therapeutic reaction to death that adopts his language. And again, to go against it, one risk is risk this kind of very anti-pastoral approach, which is usually we think about these things in times of grief, which is probably not the time to try to re-educate or deconstruct an idea. Um, and second, there's so much emotional attachment to this. Um, to start re-questioning these things puts us in an uncomfortable place of questioning, what about my grandfather? I just always assumed, right, that, that he's up there with God and he's just waiting on me to come be with him. Um, and, and so to think more about this just kind of raises an endless series of questions and, and, and we're kind of um, prone to liking black and white things, more elementary things um, than digging deep with our, our faith and deep with our thoughts and beliefs. Um, but here in Philippians 3, we got a great little passage here. We'll pick it up in verse 20. Paul saying this to the church in Philippi, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even subject all things to himself. Now, there's two movements in this passage that I want to highlight that will help us out thinking about this life everlasting with the resurrection of the body. Actually, again, in the creed, the the Greek and Latin for body is actually flesh. Um, So we play it down a little bit. But the creed is trying to go out of its way to get you to realize it's this stuff that's going to be there forever. It's, it's this flesh. It's, it's your body, your, your physical body. Um, the first uh, to, thing to look at here in Philippians 3 is this idea of citizenship. Paul says the, the Christians in Philippi, they are citizens not of Philippi, not of Rome, but of heaven. And this is an important theme and concept in the book of Philippi, um, in the book of, uh, in all of the New Testament. Um, in Philippians, we've already seen this theme of citizenship, and it's important to understand what's really going on here. So here is your kind of quick default way of reading this passage. We're citizens of heaven, which means that's our home. We're only here for a time being. It's a little test. One day, all this goes away, and we go back to where we actually belonged, which is heaven. And that's somewhat true. There's biblical language to support this kind of idea, right? We're aliens and exiles in this world. We're sojourners. But to, to really understand this idea of citizenship, you have to remember the historical context Paul's writing in. So he's writing to the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi are Roman citizens, even though they're not a part of the Roman Empire. So how does this happen? Well, through the process of colonization. Rome um, was such a massive empire, um, but yet if you've seen a map, right, think of Italy and Rome, it's a small land space. And Rome, historically, had a a very bad problem with overpopulation. Such a massive empire with nowhere for all these people to live. And if you get a lot of people shoved up right next to each other with no jobs and no food, bad things happen. And so Rome was an aggressive um, colonizer. Think of the British Empire, right? You go to a land that's not yours and make it yours and then populate it with your people. Then you grant them citizenship. Philippi, in particular, was a colony primarily composed of of expats, of of Roman soldiers who had retired. Um, And again, think of um, Roman soldiers. They had so many in in Rome to to keep up with this um, vast empire. Um, When these soldiers are retired or done out of the battlefield, um, again, imagine trying to take these soldiers who are trained in war and violence and kind of brutality that that we might not be um, familiar with, and then shove them back into civilian life, again, with no job, with no home, with no financial security. They, perhaps of all people, might bring the most trouble back. All they know how to do is be violent and and get their way through that. And so we know historically Rome had a big problem with these soldiers. Um, We kind of have the same problem right now, which is if you train people to experience and survive in some of the most inhumane conditions and jobs, it's very difficult for them to try to back out of that. And I'm not hating on the military. I'm not hating on the people in the military. I'm just telling you what these people would say when they come back, which is it's difficult. And sometimes it's, 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 it's almost too hard. I mean, I think the suicide rate is, is through the roof post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, if you think about it, um, not to be too much of a Mennonite here this morning, but to actually end someone else's life goes against the core of everything you have inside of you as a human being. Um, No matter how tough you think you are, 
right? I mean, when that moment actually comes, you have to cross a line that's not supposed to be crossed. And oftentimes, once you, you cross that line, it's just really hard to put the pieces back together. And you get, you get problems. You have a, a big job ahead of you to rehabilitate these people, um, particularly if you don't have a job for them, right? If they don't have economic security, if they don't have health care, those kind of things. This is kind of what Rome was facing on maybe a little bit bigger of a, a scale. And so they would take cities like Philippi and they would say, hey, let's go put soldiers in that city. So Philippi is, is colonized by these um, ex-soldiers of the Roman Empire. They're given citizenship of Rome. They're very proud of this. We know historically Philippi is a very proud city. We are citizens of the Roman Empire. We have all the rights afforded to us as the Roman Empire. But watch very closely. The point of colonizing Philippi and making these people citizens is not to give them hope that one day they get to go to Rome. That's the opposite of the point. Rome does not want them. There's no room for them there. It's only going to cause problems. Their citizenship being in Rome does not mean that's where they're supposed to be. It instead works the other way. It means that they're supposed to be bringing Rome to Philippi. It's their job to make the city that was once not a Roman city into a Roman city. So they bring the culture of Rome. They bring the art of Rome. They bring the philosophy of Rome. They bring the life of Rome to Philippi. They colonize it. This seems to be the the metaphor Paul is playing with when he talks about the Christian community here on earth. We're citizens in heaven, which doesn't imply to someone in the ancient world that we're supposed to be in heaven and we wait quietly to go where we're really supposed to be. It implies a vocation. We're citizens in heaven, which means we should be right now populating heaven with the culture, or earth with the culture of heaven, with the values of heaven, with the art of heaven. This goes hand and step in what Jesus has taught us, what we, we proclaim in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus prays, um, may God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So the movement is, is opposite of what we normally think it is. We normally think the movement of salvation is from earth to heaven. Jesus, Paul and his following, reverses that. The movement of salvation is not from earth to heaven. It's from heaven to earth. Think of the incarnation itself. Jesus invades humanity, bringing the life of the divine, the life of heaven into our world, into our kingdoms. And it's in that context, he then says, we await our Savior, our King, our Lord, not to take us, but to transform us. It says to transform us, our lordly body, into his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that in a week when we look at the Easter Sunday story, when we see Jesus walk out of the grave in Easter, Christians are meant to interpret that as a preview of coming attractions. Easter is not unique to Jesus in the global plan of salvation. It is unique to Jesus right now, but Easter is one day the fate of all of God's people. Easter is the destiny of all those who are united with Christ. We too will one day come out of the grave, resurrected into a glorious body. So all of the questions we might have about what that might entail, what does it mean to be resurrected in our bodies, Um, What does that look like? How does that work? There's tons of questions. There's very little answer. But the answer we do have is Jesus. 
that's going to be your best. That's going to be your best litmus test for any answer you might come up with or question that you might think of. Um, so, will you be recognizable? I think we can safely say probably. In the resurrection, I'll probably be able to be like, "Hey, it's Jake." Remember when we did that block party, and remember when we we wrestled at Stephen's baptism on the little like javelier thing? Good to see you resurrected. We do know that it's not going to be just the exact same. Um, so Jesus did have scars. Um, and so perhaps there's probably going to be marks from our past, not only recognizing us, but perhaps transforming what once was a suffering experience into a, a glorious reminder of God's redemption. So we don't know exactly what that means, right? I don't know if that scar you got on your knee as a little kid, right? It's just going to be with you forever. You should listen to your mom and dad, put the knee pad on. It was an eternal mistake. I was teaching this in class, and uh, I had a kid who actually had just gotten a really bad accident and, like, ripped up all the skin on the back of his thigh. Now the nastiest scar on Bruce, and it was going to stay like that his whole life. And he was like, you couldn't have taught this, like, two weeks earlier. This is with me forever now. I'm like, well, whatever stays, we know it's transformed. Even if it's staying, you won't look at it and experience that pain and frustration and suffering, right? It'll be a reminder of God's redemption. I don't know if tattoos are staying. I don't know any of those things, right? But I do know there's some um, familiarity in terms of the appearance of our bodies. At the same time, Jesus could be unrecognizable, but that seems more like a kind of a decision he makes. Um, we know Jesus' physical, right? He eats. He can be touched. We know that he walks through walls. That's not something we can do. Now, now don't be confused here, right? So here's... We often scour these stories and some of these proof texts just to look for that one thing to make us be like, nope, see, I was right all along. Jesus doesn't walk through walls because he's a ghost or an angel or immaterial. That's the opposite point. Jesus specifically goes out of his way to say, I'm not a ghost. Touch me. Look, I'm eating fish. Ghosts can't do that. Angels can't do that. But he does seem to be able to manipulate his physicality in ways that we can't. He can break certain laws of physics that we haven't found the key to yet. If you talk to some of the more scientifically, philosophically, philosophically inclined, you, you might um, hear theories about, um, you know, we actually know, not I, but people much smarter than me, um, know that there's more to this world than what we experience. Um, there's things like string theory and other dimensions um, and we know for certain things to, to be real in our world, um, there are just certain parts of reality that we don't get to touch into yet. Um, and it's not inconceivable, right, that at a certain level of um, dimensional living, at a certain level of tapping into all that exists in this physical world, you might be able to manipulate physicality in such a way. You might be able to take a basketball and turn it inside out without breaking a seam. In three dimensions, four dimensions, what we live in, that's not possible. We can't even imagine that. But try, try explaining to a, a two-dimensional character depth. But no, you can actually just cross each other on the page. The two-dimensional character is like, no, that doesn't work. That's not a thing. Nothing in existence will ever do that. Well, they just haven't experienced that three-dimension, right? Just because they live in two dimensions doesn't mean there is not perhaps a depth out there that would open up all kinds of new possibilities. So that's perhaps one option of understanding these things. We know that Jesus was resurrected. He had a body it could do some new things. It was a glorified body. It was never to decay, never to die again. It was not bound by sickness and pain and death, any of those things. And that is what Christians believe will happen to them. And that's just tons of questions. And from the very beginning, people have these questions. 
Like, well, we know that like what makes up my body right now, some of these molecules and atoms also made up other people's bodies. So how does it get divided out in the resurrection? And we, 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 we know, you know, all kinds of little interesting things like that. The answer is we don't know the answer to them, right? We do know what Jesus said to the, Fer- the Sadducees and they argued with him about the resurrection is probably his answer to us. Just look, you don't know the power of God or the scriptures. I don't think God is going to be surprised. He hasn't thought this through, right? He's trying to separate out on resurrection day. He's like, oh no, that belongs to both of you. Some of us are going to have like kind of holes in our, our system. No, I mean, if, if we're already accepting the belief in salvation, miracles, resurrection, I think those problems can be solved without us knowing the exact answers to them. Um, other questions like, what age will you be resurrected in? Right? Humans don't exist just as one thing their whole life. It's a really fascinating question to me. Another fascinating question to me that, that I've done some academic work on is, what about people with special needs? Some of the Down syndrome or autism how much of that is still reflected in the resurrected body and the new creation? How much of our personalities are still there, um, you know, on the spectrum of all of humanity, um, from our, our tendencies and our weaknesses to our strengths? Um, there are lots of interesting things to discuss, lots of implications for those things. You know, uh, you, you get different answers. Usually the answer tells you more about the person themselves than probably the truth of the matter. Um, so, you uh, ask Augustine what age you resurrected at, and he says 33. I'm imagining when he was 33 years old, he just thought he was the stuff. That was the peak of his existence, right? For others, it's not necessarily the case. I tend to think, following Jesus as the example, the best guess we might have would be you resurrected at the age that you were, your life was ended at. This tends to upset people at first because they're like, well, what about a kid or baby or an old person? And my answer's always been, if you think through the concept of aging, what about aging is bad or stops in eternity? The only thing that makes aging bad in our world is sin and death. Without sin and death, aging might be a beautiful, natural thing. So I would not imagine an infant who perhaps has this tragic uh, accident happening to him has to remain an infant for eternity. Imagine they continue to grow and develop they say someone who, the same way someone who's 80 continues to grow and develop to 100 and 150 and 200. Think about these people in the Old Testament who lived for much longer than you and I live right now. But take away sin and death. And all the things we hate about aging disappear. And we all just grow together in the Lord. Um, uh, the, the question of right, personality, what comes through and what doesn't come through, again, usually just reflects more of what you think than perhaps an objective answer. Most Typical people um, would suggest everyone will be born or resurrected with typical abilities. So if someone had autism, they won't have a trace of autism because we don't have autism and we think that's kind of cool. But if you were to ask someone who's blind, for instance, um, what they anticipate in the resurrection um, or deaf, excuse me, um, a deaf person would say they can't wait because Jesus is going to be the best signer they've ever met. That's not what you'd get from if you asked to hear in person. They'd say, good news, you can hear just like us. <laughs> Some deaf people maybe don't think that's all that great of a thing. Not hearing is part of who they are. There's a big, if you don't know this, there's a big debate in the, the deaf world about this. 
whether you should get the implants and, and learn how to hear or embrace kind of a deaf culture. Um, all this to say, right, the answer to most of these questions usually reflects your experience and bias. Um, it's, it's pretty hard for us to objectively step back. Um, it is wonderful to think about. I love thinking about these kind of things. Um, the central point, though, that's emphasized throughout the Scriptures, throughout the New Testament, throughout church history, is the Christian hope is not a disembodied hope. It is a hope for a physical resurrection on a new physical earth that has been joined with heaven. God's dwelling place has become our dwelling place, and there's no pain, no death, no suffering, no tears for all of eternity as we reign with Christ on the new earth. As I've taught this, um, you know, I've been called a heretic. I've been called stupid. Um, I've been called a troublemaker. Um, and so I actually was teaching at a Christian high school for a long time. And every year I would do this to rile people up. It's fun. And we get called a heretic. We'd get asked, the principal would ask to fire me and stuff like that. And so, you know, I slowly collected certain things um, over the years. And um, the historical evidence, not of the belief, but that Christians do believe this, is outstanding. I mean, it's, it's overlooked in our communities and cultures, but it's just not an argument. Um, so it's here in the Apostles' Creed. We'll just look past the New Testament. It's in the Nicene Creed. It's in the Athanasius Creed. All popular denominations throughout history and today have this explicitly, usually in their statements of faith. The Baptists have it. Baptist faith and message in 2000. Episcopalians have it in their Catechism in 1979. The Lutheran Book of Concord, their statement of faith, has it in 1580. The Methodist Book of Doctrine in 1992 has this belief. The Roman Catholic Credo of God's People in 1968, and on and on and on and on explicitly there, because you really can't read the New Testament and come up with anything other than this. But yet, even in these communities where we have these statements of faith, it's just easy to default to kind of the status quo understanding. But I think it's important to reclaim our tradition and reclaim our hope. But I think there's a big difference in how we live today and how we experience today based on what our specific hope is for the future. You know, what you think is going to happen to you tomorrow or in two years or in 10 years very much affects how you live today and how you interpret what happens today. People who believe in the resurrection of the body, I'll just give two examples here, tend to be more able to be martyrs and tend to be more able to be people of sacrifice people of poverty or celibacy or whatever it might be. Um, And there's, I think, kind of obvious reasons for this. Um, To be a martyr means to give up your life, um, to to sacrifice your life for the the faith right now. Um, Without the belief of the resurrection, I don't think you have fuel for martyrs. Um, for the same reason that I don't think you have fuel for people to be truly self-sacrificial in terms of poverty and time and resources and things of that nature, Um, which is the world that we live in and experience with our physical bodies is a fun and cool world. It really is. There's a lot of awesome things to do here and to experience here. And for someone who believes this is your only shot at it, Right? God in eternity and all of his creativity and wisdom created the most beautiful, orderly, good, tov in the Hebrew world for us to experience. And if we think this is our one slim shot at it, we sure as heck are going to try to stay out of the side of the gun and off of the stake and away from the bombs. 
Not because, right, you think our salvation's based on or anything like that, but, you know, I want to do more of this. Same when it comes to, to poverty, to sacrifice. If you think this is your one shot to explore all the, the islands in the world, to experience all the, the, the wonders of the mountains and the skies and the forests and the jungles, then you're going to seek what I call like a, the lowest common denominator type of Christianity. You're going to ask, what do I need to do to be saved? And that's it. If it's a prayer, I'll say the prayer. If it's church tenants, 75%, I'll go to church 75% of the time. But other than that, I'm going to get a couple of vacation houses, get a private jet. And here's the, the secret. The secret is that's a good instinct in those people. This is how we malign them. We, we think um, that, that everyone should pretend like the world is awful. And so you're really not sacrificing anything when you give up your money or you give up your time, you give up your resources. No, you are sacrificing something. But it's something you'll get back. It's something you will get back in spades for eternity. So fighting language in the resurrection um, in the book of Maccabees for Jesus um, has come to uh, the, the scene. Um, there is a, a group of, of kids being um, martyred. Um, boys, their, their mom is um, discussing it with them as they're being tortured to death, and they are mocking the people killing them cutting off a hand or cutting off a leg, and they're saying, hey, take the other one. I'll get them back. Better than ever. They're about to take the tongue off. And they say, yeah, take it off. It's coming back. You can take these things away from me, but I'm getting them back, and I'm getting them back better than ever before. And I'll be able to enjoy them more than I'll ever be able to enjoy them right now. I can give my money away because I'm not going to miss out on any experience this world has to offer on any joy that creation has in store for me. I'm going to get to experience it without sin and without death and without pain, without suffering for all of eternity. There's no end to our ability to suck every ounce of life out of this good world that God has created. In the presence of the Lord next to our Savior, Jesus. This, I think, uniquely equips Christians to endure situations like what happened in Egypt this morning. We can endure those situations because of our hope in the resurrection. Because of our hope that um, those who had their lives taken, those who have sacrificed or will sacrifice their lives, don't do so in vain. Don't give up something that will never come back. Instead, they, they gladly give their lives. Knowing that one day they'll They'll get a better one, a more glorious one, an eternal one. This, I think, has the potential to change more than I think we could ever imagine. If we fully believed, fully understood, fully had our imaginations converted by this hope in the resurrection of the body, it would change how we treat our bodies right now. It would change how we treat other people's bodies. It would change how we take care of the world around us. And this is the robust faith and, and hope that the Christian community has been, been given. And so when, when bad things happen, like what happened this morning in those two churches, I think Christians are uniquely equipped to respond with forgiveness and mercy and hope. And I think Christians are uniquely um, given the tools to endure, to, to, to 
sustain themselves through. You know, the creed has so far, as we, we conclude our series, offered us faith. I, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's offered us now hope. I believe that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And Paul in, in 1 Corinthians says that there are three things in the world that are the greatest three things there are. You can line up everything else, and they all kind of fail to compare to these two things. It's their faith, their hope, and their love. And he says, and out of these three, only love stays. Only love endures. Only love is a gift, a practice that we can cultivate now that will never leave us. Faith and hope are great and amazing things that we need for now, but one day they will not be needed. One day all the faith that we build up will walk away from. You only have faith for something that's not right there given to you yet. Right now we have faith. We trust in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But one day they will come through on those promises. There will be no need for faith. It will have happened. And we hope for things to come. One day those things will be here. And there will be nothing more to hope in, to hope for. And all the hope that we've gathered over our lifetime will happily let go of and enjoy the present reality. But love, all of the love that we've built up, all of the capacity of love that we have grown to receive and give, those things will last forever. And this new creation on the new earth with our resurrected bodies in the relationship of the divine family, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we live in love. And we receive their love like never before. And we return it to them and to one another. And the faith that the creed embodies, the hope that it points towards, all culminates in the love that today we can start cultivating for each other and for God. A love that one day will be what we are left with. And what we have trusted in comes through and what we have hoped for arrives. And we enjoy life everlasting with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the communion of the saints. And so the creed ends aptly with this word, Amen. Let it be. Let this faith be. Let this hope be. And let us now live in and anticipate a life of love. And this, I think, is relevant as anything could be relevant to our lives, to the global current affairs today. This, I think, prepares us uniquely to be God's people. Will you pray with me? Father, we we thank you for our time over the last couple of months to go through the the creed, uh, to to look at the scriptures and the truths that uh, underlie and and form the foundation for this this statement of faith. We thank you for um, who you are, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We're thankful for your promises and your love and your work of redemption. We thank you for the hope that you have given us. And we, we pray that you would help us to sift through our beliefs and assumptions, to sift through our view of the world and of the future, and, and to kind of convert all of our beliefs, all of our assumptions, our imaginations, 
into what you have given us through your son, through your word. I pray that you would make us a, a people whose hope is firmly planted in the resurrection of our bodies. I pray that you would allow that to um, impact the way we live, the way we react, the way we hope, the way we sacrifice, the way that we love. I pray that this everlasting life would be something that, as the Apostle John says, is is something that we tap into now, that we can now experience the love of the triune God, that we can now extend that love to each other in brotherly communion. And as we live into that, Father, help us to anticipate with great hope the day when that will be all that we have to enjoy for all of eternity. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that all God's people prayed this morning, saying, Amen. We'll now come and take...